0: Amen. Well, welcome, thank you so much you guys for leading a beautiful time of worship and welcome to the gathering, it's my honor to be here. I'm so glad to see you all, including my family. <laughs> so um, it's been, if you've been with us in, at the gathering on Sunday evenings, you'll know that we've had the privilege of thinking deeply about worship. And you've been invited into the beauty and the mystery and the wonder of the worship that is going on in Revelation four and five in the throne room. You've joined in what is already going on. And just now, you're just joining in what's already going on in the throne room in heaven where the four creatures and the 24 elders and the myriads worship. And they lay down and face down before the king and say, holy, holy, holy. So now as we continue our time tonight, it's our privilege to look at another passage from Revelation, and this one is near the end of the book. And so Revelation is full of, after we get Revelation four and five, Revelation, there's some crazy stuff that happens. It's full of some pretty wild things, some even maybe disturbing things that God reveals to John in a vision from Revelation, 6 and 7, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, on. And now at, we're gonna hit Revelation 19, but it's important to know what is leading up to Revelation 19, I think. Because before we get to Revelation 19, God reveals moments that are dark and difficult and even damning. Chapter after chapter relays different judgments and the delusion of the world and the luxuries and the intoxications that draw people away from the truth. And as all that is described, we are meant to ask, what could possibly be the answer? Where, where is the relief? And then an epic battle ensues. This battle would eclipse any of the iconic battle scenes in your, whatever your favorite movie or Netflix show is, whether it is Gladiator or Game of Thrones, or maybe you are the apocalypse now. Now, that's ironic, because even that would not even begin to scratch at the surface of what this kind of battle, at the end of time, will look like. And literally, as you read it, evil seems to be winning, and all seems lost, until the hero finally explodes upon the scene. And this is where we're entering in tonight. This is where we get to consider what it's like to worship a risen and returning king. And so if you'll join me, you can open up your Bibles in the pew to Revelation 19, or I believe it will be on the screen as well, and we're gonna look at verses one through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. After this I heard what sounded like a roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting hallelujah, Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants and again they shouted hallelujah. The smoke goes up from her forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne and they cried amen, hallelujah. And then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, both great and small. And then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like a roar of rushing waters, like peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. And at this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that, I am a fellow servant with you. And with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. And I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider was faithful and true. With justice he judges and wages war, his eyes are like blazing fire, on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses dressed in fine linen, white and clean, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of fury, of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has his name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I'd like to look at this passage in two parts. I'd like to look at the rejoicing in heaven piece, and then I would really like to rest on the rider on the white horse. Um, I love both pieces but I think there's a word from the Lord for us here at Hope, here in this community today. So in these opening verses, we hear the praise erupting from heaven in preparation for Jesus' return, like cheering crowds, anticipating the victor at an athletic event, waiting waiting for them to enter the scene. You can imagine any athletic event that you were at this, this weekend, imagine the stadium even more full, the crowd even more electric and it might give you a glimpse of what this might have sounded like. In these first 10 verses it's a call to worship with four progressive hallelujahs that are erupting from the courts of heaven. Four times in six verses we see these resounding layers of, and echoes of hallelujah from the courts. Hallelujah means praise God, or more specifically, praise Yahweh. And although this is a pretty common word in the Old Testament, It is the only place where it appears in the New Testament. It's like the entire New Testament has been waiting, building, anticipating the moment when it could shout this word, hallelujah, when the battle was won, when the pain was over. The hallelujahs begin and we don't need to lean in and wonder and ask what it's about because the roar would be impossible and is impossible to miss. They're praising God for the imminent return of Jesus Christ. They praise God for the deliverance of his people by his holy hand. They praise God for his true and just judgments. They're praising God for the end of evil. There's going to be a permanent plume of smoke rising up from Babylon and all she represents, Babylon and her evil are done for, never to rise again. Think of the things that break you, Think of the things that are just too heavy to carry. They'll cease. These things will be done. Racism and abuse and addiction and human trafficking and oppression of the poor and corruption of the system and greed, materialism, it's gone, forever gone, and there will be a hallelujah to shout. And so then in verses 4 and 5, we circle back and we see What you've seen in Revelation four and five, the chapters over and over, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fall down and they worship God. And this time when they see him on the throne, they cry, amen, hallelujah. And when they say amen, it means so be it, bring it on, yes, hallelujah, praise be to God. They're in total agreement with the one who has truly won the battle. Heaven's worship leaders are calling people to worship at that point. And then the fourth hallelujah is is the greatest of all. The multitude, it seems like the multitude, if it's not bigger, it's certainly louder, praising God because it's wedding time. If you look at verses 6 through 8 in your Bibles, it it says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like a roar of rushing waters, loud peals of thunder, shouting hallelujah, hallelujah the Lord God Almighty reigns because it's wedding time. Oh, and there's so much to unpack about that wedding symbolism, but just know that this is a crescendo of praise. It's been building since verse 1, and now the wedding feast of the Lamb has come. The bride, God's people, are fully dressed, and they don't have to worry about what they're going to wear to the wedding because God has provided them with what they need. And now they can fully experience everything that he's prepared them for, everything he's promised, the full union between God and his people, unhindered by the constraints of sin. And and then to just pause for a moment that the angel says to John, these are the true words of God. In a world that is so full of words, lots and lots of words, angry words and empty promise words and well-curated comment words, it's so good to be reminded that God's word is true. God can only speak true words, and what he says will happen. So heaven has exploded in these hallelujahs in anticipation for what God will do in gratitude for what he has already done. And so what else could God's people say but hallelujah. And they didn't say it quiet, they said it loud. It was a roar. Are you a roar? Am I a roar? What is your hallelujah? And could it be a roar? What if you did live it out? What if you weren't quiet about what Jesus is doing in your life? What would that look like at Hope College in in our community? if we did not stay silent? What if you could roar in times of great celebration? But what if you could roar even in the times of your greatest pain? One of the loudest worship roars that I ever heard was at a funeral. We were there to support friends of ours who had 23-year-old twin daughters and one tragically passed away. Twenty-three years old, just a few years older than you guys, just starting grad school, their whole lives ahead of them, and one tragically too soon, unimaginably, she has passed away. I found myself at this funeral barely able to stand and mouth the words with songs of hope on the screen, and yet I watched across the church at our friend, her father, who had his hand raised and he sang and he was worshiping and it was a roar. It wasn't loud, what he was singing, but it was a roar against evil and pain. It was a roar against Satan himself. He wasn't singing loud, but it was the loudest action of worship that I think I've ever, worked, I've ever witnessed. And we can join in with that kind of worship. We can join in every day. We can pour out hallelujahs. And sometimes maybe all you will be able to manage to do in the power of the Holy Spirit is to stand and mouth the words, maybe with tears streaming down your eyes. And then maybe other days you will be able to roar with a victory roar and an excitement and a joy. But I pray, I pray that we can do away with the hallelujah that we say with a bored sigh, with not considering who we speak of. Because history culminates with a hallelujah, and so we don't want to miss it. If you're lacking a hallelujah in your heart or in your day, you can train your heart and mind to celebrate who God is. You can open his word and ready yourself every day by focusing on what he has done and what he will do. This is what the creatures in heaven, this is what the the 24 elders, this is what the multitudes are speaking of. Who God is, what he has done, and what he will do in your life. I loved on, on Friday, I think Trigg said it so well at chapel, he said, a reduced God leads to a reduced life we fail to praise God adequately, when we fail to recognize Him appropriately, we need to marvel in the truth of who He is. And that actually is gonna create a fuller, more robust, more life abundant for us. Praise naturally erupts from people who see God for who He is. And I believe this chapter just opens our eyes to that. And so that's why I'm excited to get to the next part too. In verse 11 to the end, let's look at that piece. And this is what this says. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider was faithful and true. With justice he judges and wages war. We can almost feel the steam coming from the nostrils of this white horse as the conquering King Jesus explodes on the scene, coming in unrestrained power and authority and unveiled glory, not so much as a humble servant, or a helpless baby this time, but as a conquering warrior, not in peace this time, but in fierceness, as the righteous judge with fire in his eyes and a sword in his teeth has come to reign without rival, to wage war against evil and to win and to extinguish it forever. Now to step back and ask ourselves a question, is that how you think of Jesus? Are you comfortable with this picture of Jesus? I have to admit, we're usually, and I'm usually, more comfortable with a Jesus who is pretty docile and tame, maybe even kind of pale, emaciated Jesus. We actually like baby Jesus a lot. He's safe, he's in the manger, and because he's a baby, it doesn't seem like he talks, or he's gonna make a claim on our life in any way. I think that's incorrect, I think he makes a claim on our life, just right there from the manger, but it just seems safer. He's not saying much. We're comfortable with a Jesus that we can call on when it's convenient. A Jesus who waits patiently in the waiting room, waiting to be buzzed when needed. A Jesus who will sign off and bless our to-do list and our plans, and a Jesus who's not making any demands but he's certainly meeting my demands. We would like to assign Jesus to areas of our life where he's allowed to reign, or we even plan for him to reign later on after we've had our fun. That's certainly how I approached college, and it was, I missed the mark. I, I thought I could just say, later, I'll care about that. And I want to I say... You miss so much, I, I lived with a lot of emptiness because I was kept pausing and saying, later, later, to see the full Jesus. That's what he's saying to you tonight, I think. To look at me full in the face. So Revelation shows up and shows us the real Jesus. Here's the thing, we're probably more comfortable with our, a Jesus of our own making than the real Jesus, but when we open the word, it's kind of undeniable. We have to look at the real Jesus, the whole Jesus, and that he, is, he has an absolute, total claim on our life. He has complete authority, and we barely can get it. He reigns now, he reigns forever, and it's an established fact, and yet often we don't live fully in the light of that fact. We like to relegate him to sort of a convenient corner of our lives, but this is so foolish and leads to a lot of disappointment. We actually can't and shouldn't really dial down Jesus and live as we please because Jesus isn't small, he isn't weak, he isn't needy, he is in charge. And Revelation 19 drives that point home. So it's this dramatic moment, heaven opens, this is what we've been waiting for. This, after all the, the judgment and the difficulty and the darkness, this is what we've been waiting for. And if there was a soundtrack, I often, wa- I often reading the word and I, I read it and I feel like there's a movie scene happening for me. I don't know if that happens for you. And there's often a soundtrack. So if there were a soundtrack for this, uh, it would be every cymbal crashing, every trumpet sounding, the timpanis roaring, and there's a surge of energy and sights and sounds, and the white horse comes through the cloud. And you know, as this this horse bursts through, I have to say, I have to do just a quick shout out to any horse lovers in the audience. Uh, My daughter being one is, man, this is a proof text. There are horses in heaven. You can be, heaven will be a good place to go. (laughs) I'm not sure that's theologically sound, but I'm sticking to that. Either way, we, can, we don't escape the powerful symbolism here, right? This white horse, representing both victory and purity, is in stark contrast to the way Jesus entered Jerusalem. He came on a humble donkey, and now he comes as warrior Jesus, crashing from heaven to wage war and avenge his enemies. The rider is called Faithful and True. What a title for the Lord Jesus Christ. True to his promises, he returns. Faithful to his people, he returns. His mission is clearly stated to judge and wage war on evil with justice and righteousness in his hand. And then in verses 12 through 16, we have this amazing pictorial description of the conquering warrior Jesus. His eyes, his eyes are like blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He is a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the Lord Almighty, on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The overall picture there is one of absolute power and authority. This is the Jesus you serve. It's just overwhelmingly so to look at him full, his full character, full in the face, and God is so good then to give us these detailed descriptions of what this returning Christ would look like. Imagine standing, I think as I look at this passage, I imagine standing in front of a masterpiece where as if you stand there long enough and look at it, you start to notice things, different things, new things. You start to see like, oh, that, that just, that's new, that's hitting me new. And so those descriptive phrases, there's 10 of them, there's 10 descriptive phrases that, that really show you who Jesus is. I think for our time, we'll just look at two. Um, I did have all 10 in here, so thank me. <laughs> um, we'll look at two. Description number one deals with his eyes. His eyes are said to be like blazing fire. When Jesus came the first time, let's think about his eyes that first time. He had physical eyes that wept tears over Jerusalem and over the grave of Lazarus, his friend. He had gentle eyes that welcomed children onto his lap, laughing eyes. He enjoyed a wedding feast where he turned water into wine. He had compassionate eyes as he looked across the courtyard to Peter and restored him after he totally denied him. But when he comes here, when he comes again, we will also see, both are true, these loving, compassionate eyes, we will also see powerful, piercing, penetrating, purifying gaze of divine omniscience that sees all and judges all rightly. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Nothing is hidden. And you know, when we think about the blazing, penetrating, fiery eyes of God, we have to admit that there are so many ways, so many times that we foolishly try to avert the gaze of God. Don't look there. Don't look into the depths of my soul. But God reads us with 100% accuracy. He knows completely the deepest and the darkest corners of my heart. And this both delights us as people who long to be known. Please know know all my stuff and still love me. But it also, we have to admit, sometimes scares us, scares us to death because we desire to hide from God. That's part of our sin. God's saying there's no need to hide. I already know it all. And when you avert your gaze, you don't do anything but run from me. So don't be afraid of his eyes. All these things, the love is true and the strong and powerful reigning warrior is true and he's coming to scoop you up. We need him to be both. We need him to be both the loving, compassionate, suffering servant but we also need him to be the reigning savior and king. So where are you foolishly looking away from God when he already knows you completely? Will you look at him in the eyes and see his compassion? See his love? And then description number two, this is the only other one we'll do in verse 12. I want to talk about the crowns. On his head is many crowns. When Jesus came the first time, he he had a crown. It was our crown. A crown made out of thorns, the very curse of sin. And he wore that crown of thorns so we could wear his crown, the crown of righteousness. But at the second coming, Jesus is wearing all the crowns, all the crowns on one head. He is the one before, before whom all crowns are cast at his feet. He is the supreme, undisputed authority. And we foolishly try to grab at that authority. That's where I was struck this week. I'm foolishly trying to grab at authority. Really, even as soon as I was two years old, I was foolishly trying to grab at authority. I wanted to be in charge. My favorite word was no. This is your favorite word. (laughs) And God, God says, pry your hands off that. Allow me to be in my proper place. Jesus has all authority, whether we acknowledge it or not. In the pursuit of God, Tozer writes, there's this constant danger. When presenting Christ in a love-starved culture, the danger is to overemphasize overemphasize God's love to the exclusion of his holiness. Jesus will return in power because there is a final battle to be fought against the enemies of God, we dare not attempt to domesticate the lion. Jesus is the victor and we need him to be. He has never been a victim, not ever. He offered himself willingly and he will come one day and split the clouds. He will wield the sword and render complete instantaneous judgment on his enemies. God prevails, justice triumphs, Jesus reigns, and hallelujah, the Lord is omnipotent, and he reigns. So my takeaway for my life is that Jesus reigns without rival, even when I'm the rival, when I think I'm in control. Jesus reigns without rival. The glorious picture in Revelation 19 should reveal that anew to us, should spark in us a desire to say hallelujah. It should take the blinders off. Don't be fooled because Jesus purposely allows little kings here on earth to temporarily flaunt their power. That power is delegated, limited, temporary. Revelation 19 is a picture of who really reigns. This is truth just waiting to be unveiled. Jesus reigns without rival. He is not weak. He is strong. Maybe you needed a reminder not only of the one who loves you with a fierce love, but also of the one who comes with unbridled power to save you and to end all the evil and pain in this world. Your surre- you surrender to him doesn't change or amplify the fact that he is already in control. It puts you in the right place before him. And that's where the solid ground is. That's the answer to the chaos, the anxiety, the struggle, is to put yourself again and remember who you are in his presence. Beloved, you are beloved. You are his child, and he reigns. So as we walk out of here today, which we soon will, each of us will face some kind of decision. We'll face a decision that has a bigger implication. Will I give Jesus his rightful reign? Or will I exalt and please myself? Will I yield to the king who tolerates no rivals? Or will I ask Jesus to bless my plans that I already had? Will I yield to him? Will I say hallelujah and amen to his power along with those in the throne room? With that thought in mind, I'd love to come to a time of prayer and to pray for myself, to pray for us as a community, to pray for hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our whole course of life is upset by our failure to put you where you belong. When we exalt ourselves, we stumble and fall and we lose our way. So Lord, along with Tozer, I pray this prayer, oh God, be exalted over my possessions, be exalted over my friendships, over my comforts, over my reputation, be exalted over my ambitions, my likes and dislikes, Be exalted over even my family, my health, and even my life itself. Let me decrease so you may increase. Let me sink so that you may rise above. And Lord, will you ride into my life as you rode into Jerusalem on that humble donkey? And will you also ride into my life on the great white horse with your name being faithful? and true. Lord, let it be so. Amen.